So if you read ahead, if you looked at your uh, passage for tonight, you know, this is what I, I want you to think about for a minute. These are the kinds of things I think about from time to time. I think about if it weren't for the Bible, if the Bible weren't as broad as it is, maybe if, if God would have chosen to do things differently, maybe if He would have only given us maybe one or two books of the Bible and that's all we had, just a little tiny glimpse, uh, what would we, you know, what are, in what ways would we come to our own conclusions about the things that are important to God? You see, the Bible is so broad, I hope you realize that, that we could, we could spend the whole night tonight you trying to think of things that the Bible doesn't address. And so you could think and think and think and then raise your hand and we could come up with a passage that would apply. Most of the time it would be directly, uh, but if it weren't directly, it would be indirectly. Where there's biblical wisdom available to help navigate in, in every situation is what I'm trying to say. And what's amazing is that when you really start to study the Bible, the things that are important to God are not the things that you would think. And so when you're reading a passage like we're going to face tonight, you think, well, you know, the first thing you should be thinking is, why is this in the Bible? And this seems a little strange. All right, let's read beginning in verse 13. 2 Peter 2. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to do good and gentle, to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to him who judges justly. So, for Peter, we need some context because God's using this human instrument to speak this word. And I want you to think about this. The worst president America has ever known, whoever that may be, pales in comparison to the best Roman emperor Peter knew of. And when I say pales, I mean pales. You got to understand because it's, this is shocking to us. But if we were original hearers of this, it would have been completely mind blowing. 
Peter is in no way uh, ignorant to, to what it's like to live under tyranny. And I mean legitimate tyranny. You think about the things that Peter was familiar with when it comes to earthly authority. He lived under Herod the Great, the one who pronounced at the birth of Jesus to kill all infant males. He knew Herod Antipas, who, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa, who executed James. Uh, we talked about that in the book of Acts not too long ago. Also, there was Nero, the most infamous and barbaric of all the emperors of Rome who would light, his, uh, light up his garden behind the palace with the bodies of burning Christians. He used them as a scapegoat because there was a growing sense that he was the cause of the fire that burned down half the city. And most of you know the story. But nobody was more uh, horrific in their torture of Christians. And really, for no other reason but to try to you know, find somebody to blame than Nero. All of this are the things going on in the heads of the people who would hear this. And Peter, who has experienced all this. Now, he wasn't naive either to the reality of corruption and evil among those in power. In fact, he wouldn't have had any context of a good ruler. He wouldn't know of a good earthly ruler, a good human authority. But what he wants us to know is that there's never been a king or a president or a governor who ultimately did not attain his or her power except by the sovereign appointment of God. And we know that from the book of Romans. We know that. I preached on that in the book of Acts not too long ago. We, we went through that. But I want to give you some context. Look at these passages out of Daniel. So, in Daniel chapter 2, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now, who's the king at the time Daniel's writing this? Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the one who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The one who built a giant uh, monument to himself and had everybody bowing down. I mean, I could go on and on about all the ways that Nebuchadnezzar was the last person you would ever want to serve under. And yet, look at the next verse in verse 37 of the same chapter. Daniel says, when he's uh, prophesying to the king, and you, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom the power, the might, and the glory. You can go back and read that whole section of Daniel chapter 2. And... Daniel goes on and on and on about all the ways that God has put Nebuchadnezzar in this position. Now we know that Babylon came in. In other words, in your mind you can think, well, Babylon came and, and was a tool that God used to punish people for being disobedient. But He left Nebuchadnezzar in command and in control. And Nebuchadnezzar did horrible things for a long time. So here's the principle. The principle that we walk away with is that God expects His people to be subject to human authority, even those who are not Christian or morally corrupt. Well, let's see. There we go. Now that's hard for a Westerner to swallow. 
And it seems like it's harder today than it was five or ten years ago or five or ten years before that. Because now, you know, uh, things are very touchy and very tumultuous in our, our country. And everybody has a strong opinion about the things that are going on. But what the Bible would say is that we don't really, as believers, we don't have the freedom to pick and choose the human authority to which we're going to submit ourselves to. We don't have that right to do that. We obey the authorities that God places over us. No matter who they may be. Now that doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that you can't have an opinion. The Bible doesn't say that uh, you can't, uh, you know, decide for yourself and, and, and cast your vote and believe in your beliefs or so on and so forth. But you cannot be disrespectful without sinning. And ultimately, whoever ends up in authority, the Bible commands us to submit. Now, how does that feel? Not so good. And the question I have is, why is this passage here? I mean, why is it in the Bible? What is God's motivation here? But why is it here in this particular place? I mean, think about what we've been talking about. We've been talking about identity as elect exiles. We've been talking about our conduct as we live in the world. And so all of these sort of very, you know, normal, sensible sorts of things that that Christians would be admonished to do. And then out of nowhere, we have this conversation about submitting to authority. Well, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how three times already, Peter's called Christians sojourners, travelers, wanderers on this earth. So therefore, if we're elect exiles, then our ultimate allegiance is not to any king of this world. So we are under the ultimate authority of God the Father. We fear God. Do you know the Bible doesn't command us to... In fact, we should never fear earthly authority. We submit to it, but we don't fear it. We fear God only. Now there's a lot of complexities that come into this because it's not just a blanket charge all the time because what happens if the earthly authority starts commanding us to do something that violates a direct principle in Scripture? Then we no longer obey that authority because God supersedes it. But so long as there's not a direct injunction against a biblical principle, so we don't serve a king of this world. So Peter knows that there are those who would use this information to rebel against the authority of the world. In other words, what would happen if this passage of Scripture weren't in the Bible 
Imagine where people would go with, oh, I'm an elect exile? So that means this isn't my home. I'm not a citizen of this world. So I don't have to pay taxes in this country. There are famous Christians sitting in jail right now. And then there's some from around here that aren't so famous that are sitting in jail right now. I know of two right now in jail because they declared it unbiblical to pay taxes to the IRS. Well, a big win for them that was. Uh, but, and, and, and where do they get that motivation? They're twisting Scripture to use that as a platform. Now, if this wasn't here, and the Bible taught you that you were an exile or a sojourner, well then, why do I need to submit myself to the government authorities? Why do I need to submit myself to the laws of the land? Why do I need to follow the president? Why do I need to obey the, the order and rule of the place in which God's placed me? I mean, this isn't my home. I don't need to do this. You could see where this would go. And so many people, even with this here, have tangled this up and it's always turned out horrible. So Peter knows what would happen. He's talking to people who are under great persecution. And he wants them to first of all, he starts, remember, where does he start? It's identity. That's where he started. Remember that. So in order to be successful under great pressure and scrutiny, you got to know who you are in Christ foundationally. And then we built up from there. So, what happens if we exempt ourselves from earthly authority? What becomes the ultimate end always, the result? So if I'm not going to follow the laws of the land, if I'm not going to submit myself to the authority of the country, if I'm going to reject authority, then what am I going to do? I'm going to go and set up a compound somewhere in the middle of you know, the desert, put some big walls around it, sew all our own clothes, grow all our own food, and things are going to get super weird really fast. And before you know it, there's going to be a cult or a commune or some kind of whacked out something or another. And, but we're going to be isolated because we don't have to submit ourselves. This isn't my home. I, I mean, can't you? I mean I, can, I mean, I can see faces of so-called Christian leaders in the past saying, I serve God and God only. I submit to God and God only. I mean, I can, I can see their faces. History is riddled with people. And they would consider people who submitted themselves to earthly authority as some kind of sellouts. So here's the, and here's the logic. So it's going to end in isolation. So here's my question. Well, what's so bad about isolation? We can go, out, we can go jump in our cars and we wouldn't have to drive five minutes from here in several different directions and you can come to a church that believes in isolation. Abstain from everything in the world. Be, get away from the world. Don't do anything the world does. Right? Okay, well, 
Well, what's bad about isolation? Because here's the thing. Won't it lead to purity? See, if we abstain from everything, if we go out in the middle of nowhere and build a compound somewhere, and so we're not infiltrated by media, there's no television, there's no radio, there's no secular music, there's no, you know, we just, we just walk around and hum and, you know, I don't know, wear bonnets and, you know, eat figs and I hate it already. <laughs> But think of how pure we'd be. Doesn't the Bible command us to be unspotted by the world? Isn't that a command of Scripture? I mean, it would be so pure. I mean, isn't purity good? So we can make a case. So many people do. Isolationism. Like if you're really serious about following God, you've got you to isolate yourself. Withdraw. Get your family away. Get your kids away. Don't let anything pollute your environment. And purity's good. I like purity. Somehow I feel like if, if I pitch the commune thing, nobody's in. You know what I mean? I should have done a better job. Like... We're going to really have delicious food and we're going to sew styling bonnets. You know what I mean? And Here's the problem. You embrace isolation. You reject mission and evangelism. You miss the whole point of being a Christian in the first place. Who's the biggest losers of all of eternity? Are the people who were so busy being religious. See, they weren't the people that were that were, were just oblivious or atheist or no, no, it's the people who are so busy being religious and so focused on, on purity and isolationism. Then in Matthew chapter 7, they're shocked at the realization that they're not going to heaven. And they cry out, well, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this and this in Your name? Look at all the things we did. And Jesus said, depart from Me, I never knew You. You're a worker of lawlessness. Everything You did, all the things You did to make Yourself pure, Jesus calls lawlessness. Now think about something. Lawlessness is like that's the that's the exact person that the isolationist is trying to get away from. Right? The crazy lawless person is just doing whatever they want to do, following their desires and passions, you know, I mean, you know, talking how they want to, doing what they want to, just living for the moment. That's the very person they want to get away from and God says what you did was lawlessness. <clears throat> now you're starting to see why this passage is in Scripture. So, Peter wants us to be very diligent with regards to our conduct 
so that we can influence people. See, remember last week, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable from last week? Among the Gentiles. It didn't say in the confines of your home or behind the walls of your cult. It said out in the world, among the Gentiles. That's where we're to... So in verse 15 here, this, for, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, in order for verse 15 to be true, two things have to happen. In order for me and you to obey that, that one verse, two things have to be true. One, we have to do something. And two... We have to do it around foolish people. If there's not foolish people, I can't obey that. See, what if I do what if what if I what if I do good things? What if I work really hard to obey the will of God, but I do it in secret? And it won't work. It won't work. So all of our lives, even our political lives, must be grounded in God, must be lived for God, and must reflect our relationship to God. All of them. So how does that mean... It's so hard for me to, you know, I thought all day today, I thought now it's impossible for me to get through tonight without offending someone. The goal is not to offend everyone. We'll try that. So if all of our lives, even our political lives, are grounded in God, live for God, and reflect our relationship to God, how does that most of the time look today? Is it me or does that mostly today look like people ranting and raving that are opposed to everything, that are boycotting everything, that have a picket, want to picket everything? Right? Now, aren't there, I'm just guessing. Is it only my uh, radio dial or is there, are there stations that you can listen to where you will hear nothing but negativity? I'm talking about Christian. Nothing but negativity. You're not going to hear anything positive. It's only about what's wrong and it's only about what we're mad at and it's only about what we're going to boycott and what we're going to picket and what we're going to... That's all it is. And it's received as, look at how godly this is. Look at how spiritual we are. And here's the thing, like most of the things that everybody's mad about or wants to boycott or wants to are right. I mean, I would agree with that. 
But what is what would it really look like? To live our lives centered around a real, genuine, authentic relationship with God. Like, let's just imagine hypothetically what that would look like. So like if we had a radio station or a TV channel that was devoted to this exact principle right here, what would it look like? Would it not be... We'd turn on the radio or tune into that TV channel and there would be long segments of just deep heartfelt prayer and gratitude and thankfulness. And in, in other words, what, what will make the lost world scratch their head and go, hmm, I'm interested in that or you know, what, what's, what's going on here? Ranting and raving and yelling and screaming because that's what they're doing. See, I can't tell the difference between half the Christian stuff and half the secular. Everyone's just ranting and raving. But when suddenly somebody's not ranting and raving, they, they have a position. They've, they've, they've got a sensible, biblical, thought-out stance. And they're honoring They're uplifting. They're encouraging. They're not lashing out. You see, that to me is what we're being called to in Scripture. Here, here's, here's the central way you'll understand what I'm saying. And this is why you'll know if you want to know, according to this passage of Scripture, in my opinion, how to discern whether or not something is honoring God or not, depending on you know, what you're listening to or watching or whatever the case may be, this is the principle that I use to discern right here. Obedience to those in authority is an act of worship. So does it sound to me like the way that you are referring to all of these things that you're upset about or whatever the case may be, is it, are you worshiping God in your situation that you don't like? I want you to look again at how the passage started in verse 13. Be subject, and then notice what it says. For the Lord's sake. You see that? Is this for your sake? You see what that says? That means that your subjection is worship. It's worship. You're not subjecting yourself to human authority because it's convenient. It's not because you like it. It's not because you don't want to go to jail. I mean, all of those things, those aren't the reason. No. It's first and foremost because you're submitting yourself to the human authority 
that's above you for God in submission to God. You're submitting to them to show your submission to God. That's your motivation. Remember, the point here is if you go back, which you will when we get done tonight, you'll be, your mind will be going and you'll think, okay, and you go home, in the next couple of days you'll go back and you'll start at the beginning of 1 Peter and you'll read back through it again. And you'll think about all these things. And you'll think about how Peter is constantly pointing us to not just what we do, but why we do it. The same exact thing we're learning about in, as we study through Jonah. What is motivating us to do the things we're doing? So it's not just about what it is, but why. What's the reason behind it? And so why am I, why am I devoted to living peaceably under the authority that God's placed in my life? Why am I doing that? I'm doing that as an act of worship to God. It's for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You see that? that, that doesn't that sound backwards? And it's screaming at us tonight. A reminder. This should be assaulting your conscience for a reason. Because it's showing us what matters to God. And here's the thing. If you and me didn't have the Bible, we would never in a million years come up with this on our own. We would, ne we would never know that this matters to God. But God wants us to know that. He really, it is, it is of the utmost importance to God that His people are in the world and not of the world. And so, if you're in the world and you're not making a difference, in other words, your light's not shining. If you're in the world, remember the whole conversation last week, the whole message was about proclaiming the Gospel, right? Well, who are you going to pro proclaim the Gospel to? The foolish people around you. And you, we're not waiting for an opportunity. We're not waiting for an invitation. We're breathing. That's our job. That's what we do. And it's about the motivation behind why we do it. Because here's the thing. If, if I share... Because we've all heard people share the Gospel who were only sharing the Gospel so that they could say that they shared the Gospel. And it's painful, isn't it? Yeah. Is that what God wants you to do? Or does He want you to share the Gospel because you genuinely care and love about the people that you come in contact with? When you meet them, when you see them, you see that they're created in the image of God. God made them. He loves them. And He wants them to be with Him forever. He doesn't want them to go to hell. So it's compelled by a love that we've received from God for other people that we will proclaim the truth to them, right? And in order to do that, guess what won't work? Isolationism won't work. Some kind of you know factions and fanaticism and you know separatism and 
All that won't work. It will not work. So, all of this, now, why? In other words, why is this such a sticky point for us? Well, think about all the ramifications of what I'm saying. Yet, most professing Christians today believe that if we live righteous lives, that we won't suffer. I mean, that is the prevailing theology of our day. My sincere and genuine heartfelt prayer continually is is that all of you, all the sheep of this flock, would be void of that heresy. You hear it continuously in a thousand different ways because it's... I, I don't know. It may be my greatest grief. When I look out at your faces, is that right there? It's just we it it's just this all it is 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 a name it and claim it theology is all it is. It's totally unbiblical. But the flesh wants to be safe and secure and the flesh wants to be Jonah so bad doesn't it so bad so many people start coming to church and their goal they don't they don't want to meet god they don't want to live for god they don't want to be revolutionized by god they just want to they just want to you know, feel okay about themselves and get some some fire insurance and, you know, some of their problems to go away. But the Bible says the more righteous we live, the more we suffer. So who really wants to live righteous? I mean, who's running around? Look at verse 18. Servants, be, su- be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. See, one of the things that I, I'm in the process of contending with within myself is, you know, the thing that makes me most crazy is injustice. Like it's that's just my thing. When I see injustice, it makes me nuts. So so you can see that, you know, 2 Peter 2:18, that's got to be my life verse, right? For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I mean, we're being commanded to do that. For what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it and you endure? But if then when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Does that sound like if I just live right, 
things are going to go right. So what happens is, if we're not careful, because here's the thing, once it starts to, you know, if it's not constantly addressed in us, it'll start to prevail amongst us. If you're not constantly being reminded of the truth, what happens, it'll start to form little factions and pockets. And then before you know it, whole groups of people will start to live as if that's the truth. And then pretty soon, the whole church is filled with it. Now you sort of get an idea why you, 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 you have to, whatever you do, wherever you go, you have to go to a church that preaches verse by verse. You have to. It doesn't matter how gifted somebody is. It doesn't matter how great or any other. If they don't do that, you will lose. Because these are the passages you will never hear addressed. And it will hurt you. Because we need to know this. We've been called to suffer. So here's what, here's what Peter's saying. Submit ourselves to the authority, even if it's wicked, unjust, evil. Do it as an act of worship. And in doing so, live your life, let your conduct be honorable as such to draw attention to the God whom you're serving. Which is all going to, the more you do that, the more suffering it's going to draw on you to which the more opportunity you're going to have to then glorify God in that suffering, none of which your flesh wants anything to do with. So this is how crazy this is. Like if, if your child came to you, came home from school and said, Mom, Dad... You know, I've been reading First Peter. I've really been convicted about this. Or, you know. So I'm going to start. This is what I'm going to start doing at school. My guess is 90% of Christian parents would talk their kids out of that. Because you would immediately know that it's going to bring hardship on them. You don't want your kids to suffer. You don't want things to be hard for them. You want it to be smooth. You want it to be easy. You want people to like them. You don't want people, you don't want, you, you don't want, you don't want to cause trouble. It's not causing trouble. But what happens is we end up being of no consequence. So what would this look like? Well, because I mean, it's, it's hard to do today. We've got to keep at the forefront of our minds that we are God solely because of God. Now, if it were... 
I'd love to be able to say, you know, if it was up to me, then I realize it, it kind of is up to me. But I really think that we should have three weeks on this passage of Scripture. But because I've already outlined the book of First Peter, Matt's already preparing his next section. Ray already knows when he's coming up on deck next. They already know. I'm always in trouble for messing everything up all the time, not sticking with the plan. So I'm consciously saying we're going to come back to this text. But look at how this ends. Look at verses 24 and 25. For He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. So we're gods because when we were straying, He hung on a tree for our sin. We didn't do anything to deserve it, to merit it, to make it happen. God did everything. We didn't do anything. The way this is going to start to slip right out from under you, that's why this ends this way, is that if you don't have on the forefront of your mind that the only reason you're God's is solely because of Him, if there's any inkling of things that you did to make that happen, things that you did to make yourself appealing or pleasing to God or anything of that nature, then the whole thing is going to disintegrate. You see, because first thing right off the bat, your, your identity just got shattered. It's no longer an identity in Christ. The minute you inject yourself into it, you have to have a position in life that understands, I am God solely because of God. Then, you're in a position to begin to move into this. But what happens to people who at the core of their being walk around every single day like whatever they're doing the way they think the way they the way they watch the news the way they talk to people in their family the way they speak to people out in public the way they conduct themselves the way they spend their money the way they dress the way they act if everything about them is through the lens of I am God solely because of God. What happens when you live through that lens? It just immediately becomes that saved people should be the humblest people, the happiest people, no matter what struggles they're facing on earth. You see, because their identity as an elect exile, a chosen... Remember, think of all that. How many weeks was I ranting and raving and all the veins are popping out of my neck and I'm screaming and yelling about being an elect exile and how important that is? Then you're not up and down with, with, the, with every you know, changing tide or whatever's going on in your life. You see, you have this, you have this approach to 
life that, you know, you know what's wrong with this country? Me. That's what's wrong with it. You know what's wrong with this church? Me. That's what's wrong with it. You know what's wrong with my neighborhood? I live there. That's what's wrong with it. Because I have in me the ability to ruin everything that I touch, everything that I come in contact with. So I have to live as if I belong to God solely because of Him and look at everything through that lens and then realize that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live an honorable way in subjection to the authority that's over me to draw attention and glory to my Father, which is in turn in this world going to draw more suffering and persecution on me, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And then when I read my Bible, it will make sense to me and I will relate to it because everyone in the Bible who's in that situation is thanking God for the suffering. They're saying, thank you for counting me worthy to suffer. But you don't hear that language today among us. Why? We don't like that. We don't want to suffer. We want to be Jonah. We want to just coast and cruise and we want to be good. That's what we want to do. We just want to be... We want people to say of us, that's a good man. That's a good woman. In the file for my funeral, all the things that are off limits, no one's allowed to say Tony was a good man. Not allowed. It's not allowed. First of all, it's a lie. Second of all, I did not live my life for somebody to say you're good. It's not true and that's not the goal. Think about what do you want people to say at your funeral? That you're good? That you worked hard? I mean, no. You want people to say you were holy, you were godly, you lived for Christ. You made a difference for Christ in the world. You suffered amazingly. That's what you want people to say. You want people to stand up at your funeral and say, let me tell you something. That person right there knew how to suffer for the glory of God. Everybody that came in contact with them was like, what's up with this person? How could you be, how could you be so joyful in the midst of all this terrible situation? That's what you want people to say. You want people to, if they can't connect your life to your suffering, you failed. You failed. You failed. Because if you didn't suffer, you didn't make a difference. Because those two things, that's the only way that works. We got to be suspicious of ourselves. All right, so switch gears. I want to show you something. So the Barna Research firm, they tracked 50,000 people. 50,000 people over a 10-year period, 18 to 29-year-olds. Christians. They followed them for 10 years. They wrote a book about all of them that 
fizzled out and left the faith and became atheists and all sorts of things. And, and so of, of the 50,000 Christians that started out, the youth group kids graduating high school, where did they end up 10 years later? They fall into four categories. The prodigals, which you got your description there, the ex-Christians. The nomads, they're just the unchurched. They would identify themselves as Christians, but let's face it, they don't even go to church. The prodigals say, no, I'm not a Christian. I, my parents made me go to church when I was growing up and I, you couldn't pay me to go to church. The nomads go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but they're not. They don't, they, they don't have any faith activities at all. Then you have the habitual churchgoers. Those who describe themselves as Christians and, but who have attended church at least once in the last month yet do not meet any foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional engaged disciple. Jonas. You can write to the side. There's all your Jonas right there. And then the last group, resilient disciples. Christ's followers who meet all four categories. They attend church uh, monthly. They engage with their church more than just attending worship services. You know what that means? They serve. Just throwing that in there for you. Number two, they, uh, they trust the, firmly the authority of Scripture. Number three, they're committed to Jesus personally and affirm that He was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And fourthly, they express a desire uh, to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. You know what that means? They multiply. That's what that means. They're not just information gatherers. They want to use what they learn. No, don't flip the page. Why are you flipping the page? You don't see them blanks out to the side? What, are you in a hurry? You got somewhere you got to be tonight? Come on. So, I want you to, I want you to write underneath the blank the percentage you think. It's going to equal 100%. I want you to put how, what's the percentage of prodigals, the percentage of nomads, the percentage of habitual churchgoers and resilient disciples. I mean, it's just for fun. Let's just see. Now, if anyone in the McKnight family gets this exactly right, we got a serious problem. They've got to be cheating. Because they're the only ones that guessed FEMA Cottage. Alright, so let's talk about this. What percentage are prodigals? Come on! What do you... You don't know, so we're just guessing. 22. Oh, I see one smile. Everyone else is out. <laughs> Nomads. The unchurched. They still say they're Christian. 40, so the shocker to me is the, the Jonas. 
The largest component are Jonah's. So you can just do the math and figure out 10%. So at the end of this banner, now this is, think about, think about the investment. 50,000 people over 10 years. I mean, they wrote, there's books and books about this. This study. What is the final conclusion as to the reason why ninth, there's a 90% failure rate in discipleship? And what is the, the, when they narrow it down, what is the singular answer to why this is the answer they give? Insufficient discipleship. So, just so we're clear, here's the definition of discipleship on your paper. A disciple to develop Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. Matt's chomping at the bit right now. This is definitely his wheelhouse. So, they identified five practices. Because here's what they did. They wrote a book about the 90%. Then they came back, which I found fascinating and interesting, but what I really found exciting was when the book came out about the 10%. Because I didn't really want to know about the 90%. I wanted to know about the 10%. That's what you ought to want to know about. So I just got done reading it. And so there's five practices that these 10% of disciples, the ones that made it, they share these five practices. And it's amazing. Practice number one. Shocker. A resilient identity. The whole first chapter of 1 Peter. The beginning of the whole process. Practice number two. (coughs) Develop the muscles of cultural discernment. (coughs) See, taking part in a robust learning community under the authority of the Bible. So guess what? They they weren't somewhere where there wasn't Scripture being preached constantly. They were somewhere under the authority of the Bible and they were in community. Number three, they forged meaningful intergenerational relationships. Being devoted to fellow believers that we want to be around and become. Hmm. Have we heard this before? 
You know what that is? Living stones. Remember? I'm standing on someone. I got people that I'm leaning on that are leaning on me on both sides and then there's someone I'm holding up. Remember? Yeah. Because guess what? You don't choose the stone below you or beside you, do you? Nope. Jesus does. So it forces you into intergenerational relationship. In other words, it forces you into a community where you have to serve people that are different than you are. All right, practice number four. Train for vocational discipleship. I love this. It means knowing and living God's calling, especially in the arena of work and adjusting our ambitions to God's purposes. So you know what? how, how I would put this in a vernacular so that you would understand that you know all about this? Define success according to God. Which you should all be experts at. And number five, engage in countercultural mission. Means living as faith uh, as a faithful presence by trusting God's power and living differently from cultural norms by curbing entitlement and self-centered tendencies. So here's what blew my mind about, because I've been waiting, because I wanted to know. I've been waiting. So as soon as I got my hands on the information, two things jumped out of me. Number one, those five practices are just a journey through 1 Peter. Number two, they just represent the pathway that we subscribe to. In other words, when you read the description of a resilient disciple, you know who that is? That's somebody who makes God known. That's exactly what that is. That you move from a relationship, you're, you're, you're continually under the authority of the Word of God and you're moving into a community and then you're then you come down into a smaller community and then you begin to use the things that you've been equipped with to engage the world around you, which means you begin to multiply the things that God's shown you and given you into other people around you. And imagine, 50,000 people over 10 years And all they had to do was read the Bible. But how many of those 90% people didn't have anybody teaching them the Bible? Didn't have anybody telling them the hard things? But then I wondered, I wonder how many of them did. And just let it bounce off. 
And then I thought, well, you know, the Scripture says to whom much is given, much is expected. So I want to encourage you tonight that God has... He's placed you where you can flourish. You know, we don't just say that we're raising arrows around here. We really believe that we are. We really believe that the children that grow up here are going to shoot like arrows for the glory of God out into the world in which they go. We really believe that. This study confirms that. Let's just make sure that we're not pushing against it. So we've been given an awful lot. And as we continue to journey through 1 Peter, this will not be the last time that Peter's going to say something that is really going to sound absurdly countercultural. But it's of the utmost importance. And the reason is because it's important to God. It's important to God.